don't know if you've noticed this or not, but sometimes our memories aren't the best. Sometimes we, we forget. We forget where we put things. We forget uh, where, we, where we may have, are supposed to be at this moment. There are lots of things that we forget. And, but I think one of the most, one of the most profound and, and important things that we sometimes have trouble remembering is who we are. I have friends of mine who told, tell me that when they were young, uh, maybe high school age, and they were going out for the evening, their parents would stop them at the door and say, now just as you go out tonight, just remember who you are. Remember what family you're in. And I, I've, I find that so interesting as we think about the nature of what it means to be God's people. Because I think sometimes we have trouble remembering that we are God's people. And I am convinced that this is a lot of what Micah is trying to communicate in this prophecy. And one of the problems with what what we're doing this fall of going, taking one sermon to go through each of the minor prophets is that there's so much in these prophets that we don't talk about. And we read just snippets of the prophecy today. There's a whole lot more. And we could probably spend months and months just on one prophecy like Micah. But as you think about the whole, the overall picture of Micah, you get this sense that he's trying to remind the people of Israel and the people of Judah that they are God's people because they have forgotten. When you read through this prophecy, you see that really... The, the Israel and Judah, God's people, are supposed to be different. They're supposed to, to live differently. They're supposed to think differently. They're supposed to have different priorities than everyone else. And they don't. They look exactly the same. We read just little bits of, of the accusations that Micah makes against them. The, the, the whole nation seems to be operating on a system of who can bribe the judges the most. Or, or who, who gains their wealth through the most surreptitious means. And he writes about how they steal homes out from under people. He talked about how uh, the priests will only sac- make sacrifices if they get paid enough. And the prophets will only prophesy if they get paid enough. There's violence all over the land. And the people who have everything keep taking more from the people who have very little. There is injustice all over the countryside. And it looks just like all the other nations around them. They are operating in the same mindset. This is how you get ahead. This is how you live. This is what's important. These are the priorities. There is violence and oppression and bribery and stealing and all kinds of things. This seems to define who they are because they've forgotten that they're God's people. And you and I read these kinds of prophecies, and it's very easy for us to say, well, I don't do any of those things. I'm not stealing anybody's home. I'm not murdering anyone. I'm not, I'm not bribing any judges. I'm not putting anybody into slavery. But is it possible, is it just possible that we are still operating with a mindset that wants to be just like everybody else? That we want to operate and we believe that the way to, to, to live the life that we want to live is to look like everyone else. 
When the church faces pressure and struggles, do we respond just like everybody else? And so this word from Micah is a word for us. Because we all wrestle with it. You get to chapter 6, after the first few chapters are just sort of talking through the problems they're having and the judgment of God on them. And then you get to chapter 6, and it's a court case. At the beginning of chapter 6, God says to them, Listen to what the Lord is saying. Stand up and state your case against me. Let the mountains and the hills be called to witness your complaints. And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. So you get the feeling, he said, okay, tell me your complaints. And they do. And then there's this, there's this break in there. And he says, okay, now I've got some things I want to say to you. And God is, I'm going to counter sue you. I'm going to come back. I'm going to, I've, I've got some, some uh, cross-examination that I want to make. He has a case against his people. He will bring his charges against Israel. And he comes to them and he says, my people, what have I done to you? My people, how have I made, what have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me. I have this image in my mind of, you know, the old, uh, well, this would mean something to some of you, but the old Perry Mason shows, you know, where he's standing there and he's, he's got his finger in the people's faces. Isn't it true that you did this? And isn't it true you did that? And God is saying to Israel, he's saying to God's people, he's saying to us, what have I done to you? What have I done that has made you tired of me, that has made you think it's really not worth it to be my people, that God isn't living up to his end of the bargain? And then he answers his own question in the next couple of verses. And he says, well, here's what I've done for you. Let's see. I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember, my people, how King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed and how Balaam, son of Baor, blessed you instead? And remember your journey from Acacia Grove to Gilgal when I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness? Oh, yeah, I can see why you're so upset with me. I think one of the reasons we struggle to, to forget, to be God, to remember that we're God's people is we've forgotten what God's done for us. One of the most fantastic ways to pray is thanksgiving. To just stop for a little bit and think of all the things God has done for us. All the ways he's blessed our lives. That reminder kind of helps us refocus. What's interesting is that Israel's response is not, you're right, Lord, you have done so much for me, forgive us. Their response is, Lord, what do you want from us? When I read verses uh, 6 and 7, it feels to me like they're being very sarcastic. And their response is, okay, so what can we bring to pacify you? I can see you're upset. So what can we do to pacify you, Lord? We want to make things better because obviously things aren't right. So what can we do? How about if we, we uh, bring you more burnt offerings? Would that, help? Would that make you feel better? I tell you what, how about if we bring our yearling calves, those very special calves? What if we brought those to you? Would that, would that help? Not enough? Okay, well, how about if we bow before you and we offer thousands of rams? This is where the sarcasm really kicks in. How about if we bring you thousands of rams and lay them before you? I tell you what, how about if we bring you 10,000 rivers of oil? How about if we do that for you? Now would you be happy? 
What if we brought you our firstborn children? How about that? And there is something in their spirit that just feels like they're not quite getting it. They're, they're, they're not hearing it. They're not seeing it. They're, they're, they're real. They're trying to appease God in, in some way to say, that, let me just get you, off our, get you off our backs. And yet God responds to them graciously. And he says to them, look, you know what I want. You know what I require of you. This is not something new. This is written all over the pages of the law. It's written throughout all of the narratives of the kings. It's written on every page, every word of the prophets. Everything I require of you is, has been told you time and time again. It is not new. This word require that is translated here is actually the same word that Amos uses in the fifth chapter of his prophecy where he says to the people, seek God and live. Seek God, seek good, and hate evil. There is this yearning, this passion for him. And it's not that kind of seeking where you go, didn't I have a sock here somewhere? I can't find that sock. Well, I'll get it later. It was the kind of seeking, the kind of searching, the kind of yearning that you have when you've lost a valuable necklace that's not only valuable monetarily, but sentimentally as well. And you turn your house upside down Trying to find it. And God says, this is what I want from you. This is my heart. This is my passion. This is my desire for you. This is what I yearn for your lives. This is what I want from you. And when we use the word require, it sort of has a sense of law. And the minute we start thinking of it as law, we start thinking of checklists. And what God really wants, what he's really saying to us is, I want this to be your heart. I want this to be the desire of your heart, how you think, how you feel, how you process. I want this to be the passion of your life, like it's my passion. And so what is it that he's yearning for them? He says in a verse that's that's familiar maybe to many of you. He says, here's what I want from you. I want you to act justly and to love mercy. I want you to act justly and to love mercy. I want you to do justice is another way this is translated. That word to, to act, to do, it is, it's, it's a word that's used in Genesis during the creation story. It, it's not the word, Barah, that's used to translate in the beginning God created, made out of nothing. It's the, it's the word that's used to describe what God does from that moment on. God made this, God made that, God made this, God made that. God made the heavens and the earth, God made the moon and the sun, God made the stars, God made the grass, God made the flowers, God made the animals, God made human beings. And Micah is saying to us, what God wants from us, what it means to be his people, is to not just... Not just say, I ought to do justice, I ought to respond with justice, but it's creating justice. Creating this atmosphere of justice. That where we go, people realize that we are for justice and we are working for justice. 
And that's why justice and mercy here are connected. Because you, you can't really create justice unless you love mercy. Because mercy, because justice is going to be toward people who probably are, are, une- are, are difficult uh, to love and to care about. It's the people who get taken advantage of. It's the people on the margins of society. And what we, if we want justice, if we're creating justice, it's because we love mercy. That's our first response. We are passionate about mercy. We are yearning for mercy. And not necessarily for ourselves, but it's what we want for other people. We want them to experience mercy. And so when we come face to face with difficult circumstances and difficult people... God's people, our response, our passion, our emotion is mercy rather than judgment. It's justice rather than judgment. And we live such lives of mercy and justice that wherever we go, there's sort of this aura of justice and mercy that follows us. When we step into a situation and step out again... We leave people feeling like there is hope in their lives. We are a presence of hope and grace and mercy and love and justice. And we often think of justice as sort of the big picture. We're working to stop human trafficking. We're we're trying to, to, to change the dynamics in countries where the church is persecuted. We're, we're trying to, to do big things. And, and that's good. It's important to do big things. But more often than not, I think God will call most of us to do small things. Everyday things. It seems to me that before God ever calls us to do big things, he prompts us about the little things. The day-to-day things. I was reading just this week a, a story about some guys who were in a restaurant a few years ago. And said as soon as they walked into the restaurant, they knew that their service was going to be a problem. Because there were people everywhere and very few people had food and they could tell there was a lot of grumbling going on. And they quickly noticed that there was just one waitress trying to serve the whole place. And as they sat down at their table, a person next to them leaned over and said, good luck getting any food today. I said, this is, it's the worst service I've ever had in my life. And so they got one waitress, and I think she's the cook too. And, and, and they were, and, and it, was, it was chaos. And the, the waitress came over to the table and said, can I get you something to drink? And you tell she was flustered. They said, yeah, you know, they made their drink order. She, it took 15 minutes for them to get a couple of Diet Cokes and a raspberry tea and some water. And, and everybody around was grumbling and complaining. And every time she'd walk out with a, with a tray of food, everyone would go, ooh. And then they'd take the table and go, oh. You know, and it was just so dramatic. And they were writing her, Miss, ma'am, can I have some more water? Can I refill? When's my food coming? And everyone in the place was just badgering this one waitress trying to take care of all of it. And the guys at the, he said, the guys at the table, we joined in. We were being just as bad as everybody else, except for one of us. This one guy, Jamie, sat there and after a bit, he said, you see that guy standing over there? He said, I think he's the manager of the restaurant. And he looked over at him. There was a guy leaning up against the counter, kind of a big guy, and he was just watching ESPN on television. And Jamie said, I've been watching him. He's been standing there for half an hour while all this is going on. 
He said, we hadn't even noticed. When the waitress came by, he stopped her and he said, Rachel, come here just a second. Well, first of all, she was stunned that he would call her by name because everybody else was calling her a lot of other names and as she was going, trying to serve them. And he said, listen, he said, is that your boss over there? And she said, yeah. She goes, just a second. I, I'm sure I understand why you want to talk with him. Let me go get him for you. He goes, no, no, wait, just a second. He said, I, I don't want to talk to him. I want to talk to you. He said, Rachel... And she said, I'm so sorry for everything. He goes, look, you don't need to be sorry. I want to tell you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that he hasn't lifted a finger to help you while all this is going on. And I'm sorry that you've had to put up with people like us in the restaurant today. And I, I just wanted to tell you that. He said, she took this huge breath and exhaled and as if, if hundreds of pounds were off her shoulders. And she looked at him and said, Thank you. And she went back to her work. Maybe, maybe it's those kinds of things. Maybe it's those kinds of things that, that we do that creates this atmosphere of justice and mercy and grace. And we say, well, anybody can do that. There are lots of people in the world who are working for justice and who are merciful to people. And that's true. But Mike is not talking to everybody in the world. He's talking to us. And what he's saying is, if you are one of God's people, this is what you do. These are the defining characteristics of the kingdom. And that's why it's so imperative that we not stop with him saying, act justly do and love mercy. But you get to the end of that and he says, walk humbly with your God. It's amazing to me how many times the scripture talks about people walking with God. Adam and Eve walk with God in the garden. Enoch walks with God. Noah walks with God. Abraham walks with God. All these people walk with God. And what's fascinating is often the walking with God has nothing to do with the destination. It's about the journey. Abraham, God calls Abraham and he says, look, I want you to go and walk with me. And Abraham says, where are we going? He goes, don't worry about that. I'll tell you when you get there. You just walk with me. Okay. And he does. Adam and Eve, when they walk with God in the garden, I don't think they're trying to get to a destination. I just think they're walking together. And when we talk about walking with God, it's imperative for us to understand that God is talking about the journey as much as he is, if not more, than the destination. And here's the thing, if we are only thinking about the destination, if all we're thinking about is getting to an end, we will miss all that's going on in the journey and we will be very uninterested in creating justice and being passionate about mercy. Because we don't have time for that. We're getting to the destination. We don't have time for people. We don't have time for stuff. We don't have time for all these things. We have got to get to this place. But God keeps reminding us it's about walking with him. It's about the journey with him. It's about being with him. And we get so wrapped up in the destination that we miss the journey. Now, is the destination important? It is. But that's God's business about the destination. His calling on us is to live in the moment, to live in the journey. 
And in the journey, we get to interact with people. We get to change things. We get to be a presence for him. And we get to see all of the beautiful things that God does. One of the things about justice is that it always connects with beauty. Justice and beauty always go together. Injustice and beauty are are like magnets that just repel each other. They, They just simply cannot exist together. Because justice is always leading us to beautiful things. Helping people be, know they are beautiful. Helping the world be a beautiful place. And we miss so much of that because we are so interested and so infatuated with the destination that the means, that the end justifies the means. And we trample people and we walk over people. And we say, it doesn't matter how we get there, it's just as long as we get there. And all the while, God is wanting to walk with us and we're running ahead of him. And he wants to... He wants to change us. And I think the key element of this walking is that he says we're not just walking with God. We're walking humbly with our God. It's so vital. Because to walk humbly with God means that we submit to him. We surrender to him. We walk where he leads us. We walk at the pace he leads us. When he stops, we stop. When he walks, we walk. What he points out, we look at. It's about surrendering to him in the journey. We'll never walk with God. You cannot walk with God arrogantly. It's impossible. Because the moment we start thinking arrogantly, we run ahead of God. Because arrogance means we know more than God does. We know a better route. We know a better pace. It takes humility with God to walk with him. And it's only in that walking that he points out places where we can help create justice and where people need mercy. But if we're running ahead and we're going our own way, we'll miss it completely. What he's really calling us to is to be like him. And so when you get to the end of this prophecy... In in chapter 7, the very last few verses of chapter 7, he writes this. Where's another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant, overlooking the sins of his special people? You will not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. That's that word chesed that we talked about last week. That kindness, love, mercy, grace of God. And once again, you will have compassion on us. You'll trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. You'll show us your faithfulness and your unfailing love. Again, the word chesed. As you promised your ancestors Abraham and Jacob long ago. What fascinates me about that is that when Micah says, who is like you? His answer is not, nobody has power like you, though they don't. His answer is not, nobody has knowledge like you, though they don't. His answer isn't, nobody has righteousness like you, like, no, even though they don't. His answer is, no one is as full of grace as you. What sets God apart among all the things that set him apart, Micah says, is his grace. His desire for relationship with his people. Wanting us. And he wants us so much. He yearns for us so much. He yearns for relationship. He yearns for us to walk with him so desperately that he sends his son into the world. 
to a place, out of obscure place, Micah 5 says, in Bethlehem. And when that son comes, he will lead us and guide us and show us and reveal to us and change us. His desire is for us to be like him in the very essence of our nature and who we are. It's fascinating to me that the name Micah means who is like Yahweh? Who is like Yahweh? And of course the answer to that is no one. No one's like Yahweh. And yet, God says to us, I want you to be like me. I want you to be my people. I want you to have the same thoughts that I have, the same priorities that I have. I want you to see things the way I see them and think about things the way I think about them. I want you to be my people. Not because you're so awesome, but because I am. And what I'm asking of you is that you surrender yourself to me. You submit yourself to me. You commit yourself to humbly walk with me. And then you let me change you. And make you like me. In some ways, it's really not that complicated. It's not easy, but it's not that complicated. What he's really saying is, come walk with me. Humbly surrender yourself to me and find that I am enough. I'm enough for you. Come be my people and let me use you to help everybody else know who I am. That they too might be my people. Father, thank you for this calling you've placed in our lives. Forgive us for the times when we forget that we are your people. Inspire us have a yearning, a desire to humbly walk with you and to find your grace is more than sufficient. And we pray this through Christ. Amen.